I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Before we get rolling, I wanted you to hear about another great podcast. Hey everyone, my name is Mike Dunn, and I'm one of the co-hosts of Rethinking EDU. Our podcast is a roundtable discussion about education possibility. We talk with professionals from around the country who are doing groundbreaking work reimagining and remaking schools. Come check us out at rethinkingedu.co or wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get started. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments, those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices? Thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Amelia Nirenberg. Amelia is a writer for the New York Times focusing on the coronavirus schools briefing. She has also written about food at the Times, worked for the Associated Press in West Africa, and started things off at the Boston Globe. Amelia, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me on on this wonderful podcast. Really nice to meet you. Thanks for coming. Um, So you lived in Senegal and worked for the Associated Press. Senegal isn't a place that many people have visited, like myself. What was it like to live and work there? Wow. I mean, how how long do you have? (laughs) (laughs) The short answer is that it's probably the most important thing that's ever happened to me. Um, It was my longer answer as follows. (laughs) Yeah, it was my it was my first job after college. And I knew I wanted to be a reporter. And I knew that I ultimately wanted to be a foreign correspondent one day, which is a dream that still holds true. Um, And I I was I, I, I applied for this fellowship on a whim, and then got the fellowship probably because they made a mistake. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, um, it was, it's called the overseas press club fellowship and they yeah. fund young journalists who want to be foreign correspondents and have language skills to go to countries. And so I, uh, my mom actually flew with me because I was so nervous. Um, and I spent my first week in Senegal with my mom, uh, finding a place to live, um, we went to a lot of apartments in Dakar and then I was off to the races and it's, um, it's, a, it's, it's one of, it, it is perhaps the most exciting place I've ever lived. And I'm a born and raised New Yorker. And I, 
reported every day in in the the tallest building in Dakar is I think one of the only buildings that's over uh, 12 stories. And so you just say the name of the building. Um, so all the taxis made it really easy <laughs> or easy to uh, navigate, just go, take me to the tallest building in the city. And um, it was just incredible to, to find the ways that the world uh, opens up when you're new somewhere and people are friendly. And mm-hmm. I, I only lived there for six months, but many of my closest friends are, are are, are Senegalese are married to people who are Senegalese are people I met in Senegal. And it's, I, I, I dream about it at night more than I, more than I care to admit. So it was, it was a delight. And obviously this could be a long conversation. We could have the whole podcast on, on your experience there. Um, and you also mentioned that it was exciting. Could you be able to bring us into, to a moment or an experience that sort of encapsulates some of that excitement that you felt while living there? For sure. I mean, f- from a reporting perspective, West Africa, it, it, the Dakar Bureau covers all of West and much of Central Africa. So we were covering oh, 22 wow. countries. Um, I, as a, as a baby reporter, uh, went to the Gambia, which is in kind of a country that's bordered by Senegal. So I didn't do, do any of the, the big war reporting that my, uh, my bosses were doing, but it, it's, um, it is one of the fastest growing economies from an entrepreneurial perspective. It is one of the places most hit by climate change. There is a vast amount of social revolution happening in West Africa, you know, continuing anti-colonial battles, a lot of gender revolution. Um, Dakar as a city is an arts hub of the world. Um, And I knew that going in. And then when I lived there, I mean, everyone I knew was an artist, everyone, my my Mm. best friends were musicians and I had, I, you know, yoga teachers and it was just this like explosion of creativity. Um, so it, it's, it's a place that feels it's, it, it's a time in the, in the world history when a lot is happening in a very big place. And it was very obvious that my friends who were Senegalese knew that they were very lucky to be living at this time and that their parents didn't have as many opportunities as they had and my friends who weren't Senegalese who had come there knew how uh, lucky they were to be in Senegal, um, which is a country in the region that has more opportunity than others, um, but not not universally. So so just kind of this, there was this feeling of vitality through all the storylines. And then life in Dakar was just, I mean, it was just wonderful. I lived 10 minutes from the beach and my friends were, my friends were, um, like the coolest band in our neighborhood and they like we they were like local celebrities and whenever we went to the beach they'd bring their guitar and all my friends were surfing and I I, I still kind of can't believe that I'm, I left um mm. but it was um one one memory that I I love and and yeah. miss is that I I grew up Jewish I'm very very secularly but we always tried to do Shabbat dinner and I was worried about that. I really missed kind of the idea of a community meal and a communal meal. And then every weekend, um, Saturday afternoons were at my, my friend Big's mom's house where like 35 people would come and she'd, you know, she'd make huge amounts of food and everyone would just stay and pass the day. And then Sunday evenings we would, um, 
usually fish or eat fresh fish on the beach that my friends had either caught or their, their friends had caught. And it was another just, you know, you know, 15, 20 people around a one big fish and one big pot of rice. And, Mm. um, it was just, it was a place where I learned a lot about community and family, um, that I hadn't learned before. Yeah. It sounds magical. Tell me about, uh, one of the concerts that, that your friends, you know, they're playing either on the beach or, or on sort of the, maybe a stage that they're sort of constructing. Um, you know, what was that like? Oh, it was so fun. Um, Big is uh, the band leader, um, and he they, they he does um, Afrofuturist movement, and so it was very, it was like a little bit of it was a lot of folk and guitar, but a lot of uh, Senegalese instruments whose names I knew when I lived there, but I don't remember. <laughs> and you know, kind of synthesizers, and there I mean there are a ton of clubs in Dakar, so they would go and they'd play a set at a club. Always much I always left early at like four a.m. and everyone else would okay. go. Uh, That's early, okay. but you know, it was everything from a backyard concert to mm-hmm. a local bar to a very swanky club to jazz concerts. I mean, it, it was it was music. It's a city that is full of music. The only city I've ever been that feels like that um, also is Galway in Ireland, where just every place mm-hmm. you walk by has music spilling out of it. And so, D- Dakar is a city that is just resonant with sound. And you wrote a lot of stories while you were there or you were a part of, you know, many stories that were written. Is there a story that you wrote or you were a part of or collaborated with that has stuck with you uh, since that point? Um, Many. And, 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 uh, but one one I did actually not for the Associated Press, but I, toward the very end of my stay, I went with my friend Stefano, who's a, a photographer to the Gambia. And it's, it's the country that I spoke about that was bordered by Senegal. And the Gambia had a brutal, brutal dictatorial regime for a long time, for like 20 years. And when I was there, it was like year one, one and three quarters after the fall of the dictator. And there was this huge, I mean, if I, if I had thought Senegal was a moment of just everyone feeling like something could happen, the Gambia was in, in total like excitement and and every, there was suddenly opportunity and people could express their opinions and there were so many new newspapers cropping up um, because pre- the press had been many many times Gambian journalists moved to Senegal to continue reporting on things that were happening in the Gambia um, from outside but but you know lot, lots of journalists were killed or tortured or silenced. Um, and there was a new journalism school where these people who are my age, younger and older, who were, you know, early 20s, teenagers knew they wanted to be journalists. They'd had family who had had, you know, been, been suffered the, the effects of the of the regime. And they were the first class of graduates from this new journalism school. Mm. And just, just, I mean, you know, most people become journalists for kind of the same reason. They, they believe that information, you know, creates justice in society. Their journalists are pretty curious. Um, journalists are very rarely rude <laughs> um, because you kind of can't be to have a good, good interview, but just the, 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 the lived articulation of the power of the press is something that I had read about historically, but hadn't really encountered, even watching my colleagues um, in America over these past four years. Yeah. 
And just the passion and the fervor and the values first reporting that my friend, that the people I met and who have since become my friends mm-hmm. um, worked with was, was something I think about a lot. And, and I wish that I had that energy in my reporting. Mm-hmm. I try, I try to have a lot of energy, but just the, <laughs> the sense of like my country will fall if I don't do this mm-hmm. well is not something that I have ever really, really felt in the way that they have. Yeah, and you had a foundation in, I assume, speaking French. And were you interacting with people in French? And were you also writing? How did you How did you navigate with the language? I I my high school had a very good French program, um, which was great. And so I spoke French. I took French in high school and um, through college, and and did my a lot of my uh, research for my master's thesis I did in French and I wrote it in English but but was reading archives in French so I was comfortable with the language yeah. academically but it's very different French in in Senegal than it is mm-hmm. in Paris and Belgium um, which is what I was used to speaking and it was really hard I mean I I oh god the amount of times that I said something I was I was trying one of my friends had cut himself this was really early on he'd, he'd cut himself on something and we needed something we need uh, and far, there's the pharmacies are like a completely different patchwork system but we needed to get something to stop the blood and the word for blood in French is sang and the word for monkey in French is singe and I ran into the pharmacy and was like we have to stop my friend's monkey <laughs> <laughs> Who is this girl? I'm like a, a crowd control monkey is actually like a pretty big, pretty big problem because like, that's dangerous. So it was this whole. So that was like every single day uh, of life there, but mostly it was great. Now, do you miss not not speaking in French as much? I do. Yeah, I do. It's um, it it's it, I, I hadn't. I'm not nearly fluent enough to for this to be true, but I, my friends who are truly bilingual will say that they have, they are different people in different languages that they speak. Mm. There are parts of my personality. I don't know if it's because I was speaking French or because I was in Senegal, which is a very different country, but I miss, um, I'm, I was much chiller <laughs> when mm. I spoke French than I am now. And it's just, I mean, it's just, it, it sounds prettier than almost yeah. any language in the world. Um, so I miss I miss hearing people just make beautiful sounds every day. Yeah, I don't know if you remember your dreams when you wake up or not, but do do you remember uh, dreaming in a different language, whether it be you know the traditional French or the French that they spoke in Senegal? You know, it's a really good question. I I will try and pay attention. But <laughs> <laughs> my dreams are much more like colors and textures mm. and. I don't. I don't know how much dialogue I can remember. More, more kind of like feelings and, and yeah. scenes. Yeah, I'm always jealous of people that can like wake up and they can recall a dream with like specificity, and I'm just like, uh, I'm not sure what was really going on. Yeah. Um, you know, in my dream. Then from Senegal, you moved uh, back to New York City and working with the Times, where you started with a focus on food. Now, mm-hmm. as you got into that. And, and you started uh, working, you know, on food, writing about food. What was your angle as you interacted with food in New York City? So the, 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 the answer that I'm sure my editors would not want me to say 
but is the true one is that I actually don't know that much about food. Most of the people (laughs) on the food desk have gone to culinary school or Mm -hmm. worked in restaurants or really, you know, are people who love food. And I just, I've never been to culinary school. I've never worked in a restaurant. Like I'm not even that honestly that good of a cook. I I, I improved, (laughs) but I'm still not like a great cook. Um, And so I didn't have I would, I am not, I would not be good at going to a restaurant and like writing beautifully about the different things because often I still don't know ingredients on a menu or just, you know, this tastes delicious. I have no idea if it's better than all the other, you know, lamb shanks in the world. So the, the like tactile-ness of food, which so many of my Mm. colleagues are so good at understanding and writing about is just, you know, I'm not person to do that. So I sort of approached food um, kind of as a, as a lens, um, which sounds cliche, but that's the best the best word I, I know to describe it, and thought about food more as, okay, like, which is not, not new to me, most food writers do this, but they, they could also write a recipe to go along with it. Um, but like, so these people are selling these really good arepas. Who are they? You know, what it... Mm-hmm what does it mean for them to be, is this like, is this a business that they're doing because they have to, or because they want to, or, you know, there's a, there's a drought in New Mexico. What does that mean for the prize state vegetable, the hatch chili pepper? Well, like let's go to New Mexico and find out. So it it was kind of a like, okay, food is, food is immigration. Food is culture. Food is small business. Food is agriculture. Food is climate change, you know, and, and food is all the delicious stuff that other people can do better than me. So, um, you know, if I want to tell a climate change story, what's a good food to tell it? Um, and how do you go from there? Yeah, well, let's delve into that New Mexico hatch chili pepper because you wrote a piece on that. What, what did you uncover in, in that piece? I, so, so one of the things that I will say um, generally about the times is that a lot of the times – the Times breaks news. And a lot of the times the Times takes a national angle to something that everyone who lives there already knows. Um, mm. The New Mexico story was, I think, the latter. Like if most people, many of my closest friends are from New Mexico just by happenstance. And it wasn't news to them that the hatch chili is delicious and that mm-hmm. it's like, and that climate change is bad and like aridification is happening. Yeah. But it was, I think, a pretty useful, I hope, a pretty useful story for people who maybe liked New Mexican food or, you know, had been there or were worried about climate change and food systems in general to anchor it um, mm. as, like, here's a concrete thing that could be lost. Um, because the, the Hatch Chili, I mean, I, I hadn't known this really before knowing New Mexicans, but I don't, I mean, there isn't really a food that I can think of to a New Yorker that, and and New York is a city of like bagels and pizza and like people (laughs) mess with the New Yorkers like bagel or pizza, but the hatch chili is different. It's like, it's, it's, it's a real state pride. And so for that to be lost, I, I mean, I guess it would be like, you know, climate change killed the New York city dollar slice, but like the New York city dollar slice, isn't that good. Like that's not <laughs> a delicious food thing. It's, it's mm. just a, 
it's like a necessary part of the hustle and that's why New Yorkers like it. And like, there's a great equalizer to the, the dollar slice, but like the hatch chili is like a great, interesting flavor. Um, and climate change compromises that. So it, I, I think it just made it feel real. But I, I also think that a lot of New Mexicans probably rolled their eyes and said, like, thank you, New York Times. I knew that yeah. already, which is a criticism. <laughs> now, I don't know if you're sort of doing this on purpose to get us to read the article, but you're sort of leaving us on a cliffhanger here. <laughs> what, what's going on with the Hatch uh, Chili Pepper? And for the listeners, yeah, we got to go read, uh, you know, the entirety of it. But can you give us a little uh, insight there? Sure. Uh, b- basically, you know, incredible, incredible, yummy, smoky uh, pepper. New Mexico, like much of the Southwest, has, you know, one of the main consequences of climate change in the Southwest is is drought and drying out and, um, you know, big, big, big problems of, of just like irrigation. And New Mexico, Southern New Mexico also grows lots of other crops like potatoes, I think. I did I did this reporting a while ago. Watermelons, pinto beans. You should you should fact check me before you but <laughs> you listeners. Um but you know big like industrial ag crops and the hatch chilies are great, but because they're spicy peppers, you don't actually need you're not going to eat like six hatch chilies in a day, whereas you might eat six potatoes and they're they're a niche artisanal thing. Um, and growing ever more so. So not only is this thing kind of in jeopardy because it's it, it's also kind of a financial consideration for farmers where sure they could divert their water to grow these peppers, which like do call for a fair bit of water. Um, and they keep the 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 energy of their district alive and like, you know, this is something their family's planted for a hundred years. Yeah. But you know, they might be losing out on money that they could, or, you know, they're not irrigating a high cash crop, um, which, you know, with the state of farming in America and our like failure to bail out farmers and our failure to like create trade systems that make it possible for farmers to like actually profit, um, you know, that's a really hard calculation to make. Cause if you're, if you're, if the question is like, oh, what, should we grow hatch chili peppers this year? I don't know. I don't, it's a lot of work. It's a very different calculation than like that we haven't made a profit in five years. And, you know, that's, that's money that we might not get back. Um, so that's kind of the state of it, but, but you should just read my article. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I have to ask, uh, you know, before we move on um, to talking about something else, I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, but what's a restaurant in New York City, maybe one off the beaten path uh, that serves some of your favorite food that, you know, you could share with our listeners and they can go there next time they're in New York City? Ooh, um, I I live right around the corner from Aldi La Trattoria in Park Slope, Brooklyn, and it's just like bang up good from Italy, Italian food, like perfectly chewy pasta always has something mm. interesting so that's okay. a really good one um, okay, can you re- can you repeat that one more time and the location like not the exact location but the neighborhood again it's aldi la it's a a l d i l a trattoria in park slope brooklyn it's on um, fifth ave and i think carroll street really good okay um I wrote about this place, La Morada, in the Bronx, um, and it's it's they it's like made from scratch. It's Mexican food, um, indigenous Mexican food, 
And the family that owns it are, many of them are undocumented and they're very high profile leaders in the South Bronx's fight for um, the rights of undocumented people and especially the rights of undocumented restaurant uh, workers and their son, who my friend Marco is like really visibly on the front lines in his um, own struggle to get documentation and, and, and uh, I think political asylum, I could be wrong, um, got a lot of press interest. So not only going there, will you have like amazing mole that has been, and pastole, like that has been cooked for hours and hours and hours with a perfect technique, but you'll also go and you'll be supporting a business that is a center of community activism. They have this bookshelf at the back that has like, you know, everyone from like, uh, Noam Chomsky to Gabriel Garcia Marquez to just like great thinkers of the 20th century, which I think is like, you know, a lending library. So really cool place. And that's La Morada in the Bronx. And then. Oh, wow. You're going to give us a third. No, I'll stop. It's okay. No, no, please. Uh, tiny plug. We're talking about Senegal. Taranga in um, South Harlem is just really amazing. And it, makes me it, it's it's like it's like eating in dakar and the chef pierre tiam um mm. is just remarkable so that's those are the, and, yeah, yeah, and you and you hit up different neighborhoods with communities serve your listeners <laughs> and now i have a couple places to uh hit up next time we're there so thank you and thank you also for sharing that story behind that restaurant in the bronx you know that that sort of brings to light you know many things that i don't understand when I go into a restaurant or may not understand when I go into a store. Now, if I go into that that restaurant, that store, my eyes um, will be open more to that. And, and I appreciate that. It's a nice thing to say. Thank you. Your most recent shift at the Times is with the coronavirus schools briefing. I'm pretty sure you didn't expect it to be lasting this long when you started the project. I know for me, I thought it was going to be lasting like maybe three weeks. And here we are. And Little did I know. So there's a lot to unpack here. But um, in New York City, what do you think has worked surprisingly well as schools have attempted to operate in the midst of the coronavirus? Ooh, um, so little good news this semester. So yeah. That's a good question. Um, this is a really cheesy first thing to say. Um, so I apologize. But and there's a ton of politics and there are a ton of people that are, you know, whatever, being bad. But but I think that one of the things that has struck me in pretty much every interview is that people, like, actually really care about each other and are really worried about each other and are really worried about the kids. Um, and just one of the things that I think has worked well, or the places that it has worked well, are, are places where people have you know, been able to say, okay, and why are we here? We're here to educate kids. Um, and that's happening a lot more than, than we're, you know, we're reporting than anyone's reporting by and large teachers and parents and students are showing up for each other and for education. Um, even if they are squabbling. Um, so I think that's one of the things that's working well. I think that from a policy perspective, um, we saw early on that schools with, with optional masks had outbreaks and schools that had mandatory masks had fewer outbreaks. So mm. mandatory masking um, just statistically is reduces risk of yeah. uh, 
you know, viral spread. I mean, one of the things that's working well in general is schools, you know, science may change and, but, but right now the forefront of my understanding and and most people's understanding of, of epidemiology and public health is that there's lower transmission in schools than there is in general. So schools in general are doing well. Um, open windows and ventilation systems, schools that are really leaning in on that, that's doing well. So it's, it's, I think one of the things with a lot of the school stuff that, that from, from architects and folks I've spoken to is like, it's not, it's not actually that much new technology is required. You just have to like have a district and have administrators and have the ability to fund, you know, if you need to replace all your windows, you got to replace all your windows and then you can get the kids back in classrooms. Or like, if you, you know, if you need to take over the gym and make it, you know, that's that sort of stuff you have to, you have to be, it will cost money and not all districts or schools have that ability, but the districts that have allocated, you know, funds to making sure all the teachers get PPE, making sure there's a testing regimen in place, making sure that there's enough people to contact trace, like making sure that pods are maintained really strictly and well that those districts actually do pretty well. Um, and mm. there are lots and lots and lots of kids who have been in classrooms, you know, with, with modifications, but relatively and uninterruptedly across the country. And I think that is a victory. Yeah. I wanted to start off positive, <laughs> but, but we have to, I, I want to get your insight on some of the failures. What, you know, just the tops, like what have been some failures that have just sort of, you know, stuck out to you during this process? I think, I mean, again, again, cheesy. I think a failure is when people forget why they're there. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think that, you know, there are a lot of reasons like, and this, this is, you know, very, very rarely, again, the vast majority of teachers and parents or students are trying to educate kids. I think that some people are, some some individual teachers or, or individual schools or individual parents are not focusing on that goal. Um, I think that in general, most people seem to be trying to communicate. I think there are times when we've reported on unions and districts that have been widely criticized for not communicating well, even if they're fighting. Um, so uh, Chicago is, you know, the teachers have very valid grievances. The district has very valid grievances. The kids have very valid, like everyone has a good, good points to make and a compromise as all compromises falls in the middle, but myself, I haven't criticized, I guess I'm doing it now, but union <laughs> leaders and, and, and other districts and, and national union leaders have all said, you know, the communication has broken down mm-hmm. between the union and the district. And, you know, both the union and the district say the other side broke down communication. And that's probably true, but like, you know, what, what is the like number one rule of teachers? It doesn't matter who starts it. It matters who stops it. And like, it doesn't, there hasn't been enough movement in that direction. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's partially my opinion, which I'm not supposed to give, but that's mostly based on reporting um, just from lots and lots and lots of much more influential people. Um, I think that one of the failures we've seen from higher ed is just schools that have, again, testing really does work. Regular voluntary or regular mandatory uh, um free testing works and schools that have, you know, once or twice weekly tests 
um, that all their students who are on campus have to take and on or interacting with the campus community have to take. Like those schools, even if they've had, you know, momentary surges, they've been mostly able to keep cases percentage uh, uh, positivity percent below 1%. Like that's a Mm. victory. Yep. Um, And I think uh, that one of the things that hasn't worked is um, districts that didn't prioritize making resources available for remote learning Mm. and or making, and that both means like they didn't realize they needed to make sure all the kids had both internet and a device. Um, A couple of districts like sent out a bunch of computers and like, the kids were like, great, do I sit in a Dunkin' Donuts parking lot with this thing? Like, well, we don't have Wi-Fi at my house. So that that was a failure. And I think another failure from the teacher side is that a lot of teachers were like, now you're teaching remotely, good luck. And there wasn't enough resources for some districts and, and some schools to just be like, and this is how you work Zoom. And like, how are you feeling? How are you doing? How are you talking about this? Um, mm-hmm. And then I guess the final failure that is across the board is that this is um, like the worst semester ever, even if your school has had like no cases and everyone's been fine because Mm -hmm. 300,000 Americans have died and lots of people have lost their jobs and like you can't hug your friends and like, you know, everything sucks right now, even if some things suck a little bit less. And, and there just hasn't been a national conversation in the, on the mental health toll that, that teachers have to deal with every, I mean, teachers are, are, guidance counselors and like helping kids find food banks and it's heroic and exhausting and they're not getting like mental health resources enough at all and the kids aren't either the kids you know as you as you make sure that there's a nurse in every school which i think is a really good policy in general and especially during a pandemic you know a nurse is a front line of the physical health concerns of a kid a nurse is not you know usually nor should they be trained as um, guidance counselor, like, you know, everything like that. And and people really need that. And we're not talking about like collective grieving enough. Um, mm-hmm. So that's a failure too. There are many, I could go on. This is reporting <laughs> on the failures since August. So many failures, but um, thematically those are some. And I really enjoy the coronavirus schools briefing. One of the things I, I really like about it is it, has the New York City focus, but then you guys widen the lens, you look at different regions, and then you even look at other parts of the world. Like I think this week you had an article on what's going on in Germany, and that's really insightful. As you look at that, not talking about you know what's been helpful or failure or positive or negative, but what have you seen as like differences, right? That just sort of like pop off the page. Oh, wow, that is a major difference between New York City and another part of another region or New York City and another part of the world? Or do you get what I'm asking with that question? I think so. I mean, every every district, you know, the the New York, the the New York, the United States does not have a unified policy. Many other countries do have a unified policy, um, which I guess is one of the differences, but there's no, there's no real national policy here. Yeah. So if there are what there, I'm pulling this number out of nowhere, but I feel like there are 50,000 districts in the country. You know, let's say there are 50,000 for argument's sake. That's 50,000 different coronavirus schools like approaches, which is crazy. I mean, that's like a nutty way. That's bananas. Um, 
so, so one of the major differences is that almost every other country that we have reported on has a, has a national strategy. Um, I, I think that the place that schools fall, um, let me back up there. Lea, Dr. Liana Wen, who was, um, I think she was the, she was like the chief, the, the health commissioner of Baltimore. Um, but she's someone that I've spoken to and she's really, she's really someone, you know, when you just talk to someone and you're like, well, you're smarter than me and you're smarter than everyone else I know. She, she, yeah, I feel that all the time. Yeah, me too. But she, she, she's chief among people I've spoken to where I was just like, uh-huh. And then what happened? Um, but she has this idea of a coronavirus risk budget, which I think is really helpful, um, which is basically like, let's say we all have X amount of risk. Um, we all know we have to go to the grocery store that, you know, that let's say that uses 10 out of the hundred risk nuggets. You know, we all, we all have to, you know, go, we all have to exercise. You know, if you wear a mask and you do it outside, that's three risk budgets. Um, but schools are the, the amount of like budget that different countries allocate to opening schools is very different. And not across the board, but the United States seems to be one of the countries that is allocating the least amount of budget to opening schools. And a lot more of that is going to, you know, businesses in the economy, such as restaurants and shops and and nail salons and all sorts of things that keep the economy going, in part because the United States does not have a comprehensive stimulus plan in the way that most other countries do. So, So we just did this recent send on Germany, which even in their lockdown light, you know, when there were, I think there were curfews and some bars closed and stuff, like schools stayed open. In France, in, infection rates were like 11%. The con- national positivity rate in France was 11%. No one was eating at restaurants. Bakeries were closed. Like e- everything was closed and kids were going to school. Um, and that's because France has allocated more of its like coronavirus risk budget to in-person learning. Um which you can only do if you have a stimulus package or, and, you know, people, you pay people to stay home because it's, it's like unreasonable to ask people to just give up their jobs. So anyway, but, but I, I think that in general, that's one of the places that the U S really differs. Um, one of the other places that the U S really differs is it's internet resources and access. You know, I just five minutes ago, I was talking about how kids don't have computers and Wi-Fi, but like the internet is, is something that is much more available and present and part of American life than it is in Kenya, which just stopped its school year. And all the kids are restarting the school year in January to the last of my knowledge, because so many kids just don't, there's no, there's not enough internet in Kenya and there are not enough computers in Kenya. So Kenyan school children could not learn remotely. So they just stopped school, um, which created its own problems. And, uh, our Nairobi bureau chief had a great article about it. So you should, if you, if you're interested, you know, Kenya schools and why times you'll, you'll find it. But, um, you know, we just reported on Germany. Germany is a country that leads the fight in data privacy. You know, they're very concerned with their data privacy. My boyfriend is German. He has so many passwords, like, um, you know, Americans were not as concerned with data privacy. And so we are much more comfortable on Google Classroom because we're much more comfortable with Google Suite than your average German would be. So it's, I mean, it, you know, national differences shake out in general, but I think the the coronavirus budget allocation and the ability to transition to remote learning are, are two of the biggest things that's different across countries. 
you know, as we're looking at education and the coronavirus and these past, you know, however long this has been, is there anything that we can learn from this? Or is it something that we just get out of and move on into a different situation? Or are there truths that can be learned as we move forward? What do you think? Hmm. What a good question. I'm I'm still just like drumming my fingers for a vaccine. So that yeah. is, um, I, I like I like the hopeful, you know, not not six months, but five years question. Mm. I think I did a story, which was one of my favorite stories I've done on education about outdoor schools. And I think that the outdoor school movement is something that a lot of countries are more focused on than the United States pandemic, notwithstanding. Um, My, my, my best friend's little brother uh, is Swedish and they live in Sweden and Kiki, her little brother, like, didn't go inside until he was 10 and Kiki's the best. Um, and so I, I think that a lot of other countries understand um, how school, sorry, I just hiccuped, <laughs> how school can be, can be still learning focused and use the natural world and have explored that more than the United States has. Um a lot of that's because the United States, you know, has a very different relationship to public space and to nature and in cities, it's much harder, but, but the pandemic created the potential for outdoor, created a necessity for outdoor learning. And a lot of the schools that I interviewed and a lot of the people that I interviewed who were experimenting with it, like the universal message from the dozen and a half interviews I had was like, we love this. This is the best. We should do this more. The kids mm-hmm. love it outside. Um, and, you know, and as the climate crisis becomes, you know, ever more of a crisis, the more you can get kids looking at leaves, the more likely they are to, you know, take science seriously. So, so there, there are a lot of win-wins, win-win-wins on that. Um, I, I'm curious to see how a lot of the test optional and test blind stuff looks like, like this year with, with colleges saying, we really actually don't care about your SAT and ACT mm-hmm. like scores. You really don't need to take them. Um, I, I'm curious to see if that sticks. There's been, I mean, that's a really interesting part of this whole conversation. A, a lot of people are still taking them anyway because they don't believe the colleges. The colleges keep saying, no, 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 we're really serious. Um, you know, and, and the SAT and the ACT have been, you know, constantly reformed and, you know, the, the amount of studies about how the SAT correlates with income level, but not great, like success, but, you know, everything about those tests is constantly under review and constantly under debate and, and the optionalness of them. Um, I, I wonder what that will do to testing standards in general. Um, and then I, and then I think the coronavirus and, and the protests against police brutality this summer showed and exposed systems and systemic injustices in a way that I think people had spoken about, but it hadn't reached a broad American consciousness yet. I think when I was growing up, you know, we, we definitely learned about racism, but racism was something that was like, you know, don't be racist to another person rather than like racism, the structure. And I think that within schools, because the current, like people of color are much more likely to die of the coronavirus because of racism. And, you know, the protests happened and curriculums have to change because of racism. I, I wonder if 
the approach to society as a series of systems, um, which the coronavirus has exposed and social movements have exposed, will continue throughout like curriculum considerations um, after this. For teachers or leaders or families listening, do you have a project idea that they could be doing now? Something was mentioned a couple weeks back in the coronavirus schools briefing, and I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about that. Yeah, um, I don't have kids yet, but hope to one day. Um, so, you know, parents and teachers have better, they're infinite, infinite resources for anyone you know, looking for, for this type of stuff. We suggested something which the, I, the responses that we got to this were so cute and so cool um, to have your kids do like a state of the block, um, mm-hmm. you know, like a news, a, a newsletter about the goings on of the house. And like 15 parents sent me what their kids had done and they were so funny and cool and you know, someone interviewed their dogs and and wrote like a story from the perspective of their dogs, this third grader, and interviewed their family members about their jobs and like documented the way that a tree was changing colors and found all these fun facts. And and, and like, you know, I, I we all get a lot of emails. I get a lot of emails. I read like every page of these because it was so fun. And the kids were like, it's a writing project and it's an observing project. It's a science project if you make it a science project. So a state of the block newspaper would be my recommendation. But there are so many other things to do. And you should totally look at like people who write about parenting if, if that's an actual thing. But um, it was really it was really fun to read those. And I, I, if, I, if, if and when I'm a parent, I'm sure I'm going to make my kids do like annoying writing exercises like that. I'm a journalist. So um <laughs> Yeah, yeah, one thing I liked about it was uh, well, there are a lot of things I liked about it, but one uh, one thing was the choice, you know, giving students choice, and um, yeah, um, and I also liked how it was, um, you know, built to their community and their and their place. Like it wasn't telling them to go somewhere else, but like right where you're at, you know, interview your neighbor that you've you know maybe said hi to, but you've never asked them about their life. Um, You know, take a picture of that interesting bush and you know, write a story about, I know my kids have this cat that goes up and down the block and they've named it and they've taken pictures and they, they have a story of, uh, of the cat. And I don't think the story is true, but they've interviewed people on the block and have a story of the cat, but I think they're mixing cats together and creating the story of the cat. I don't know. They think the cat was, you know, born from this, this house about five, about five houses down, they had a cat. And the, the, the cat had babies and one of the cats got out, the little baby cat, and this cat stayed close. Now, I don't think this is true, but this cat I stayed know. close and is uh, is roaming up and down. And um, the cat's name is Molly and the, the cat's like 10 years old. And they the cat gets fed by the back door, a neighbor three houses down. Uh, they feed the cat every night. <laughs> I love your kids, but that's that's so cool. Like they're creating. That's like a novel. Like I totally read this book about like Molly the cat that like can't leave the block. <laughs> He's like Molly from the block. You know. <laughs> that's a great title, Amelia. This this has been a wonderful conversation. I've loved it. Loved every part of it. It's been really insightful. As we get to the end, who do you want to give a shout out to? I would like to give a shout out to Alexander Russo, um, who is an education reporter. 
he I think founded or is the head of the grade, which is an, is is like a publication and a newsletter. His Twitter feed is so helpful to me and so helpful to all people, all education reporters. Um, he also does a really good job of being an education reporter that not only writes about like what's actually happening in schools, but also kind of nudges education reporters to do their jobs better. He'll often release like, here's how you can make sure that you're actually like representing the people that like where they are and, and, you know, criticizes our stories in ways that sometimes I agree with. Sometimes I really don't agree with, but are always really helpful um, because, you know, we either get the like, we hate you. I'm never through the time, you know, types of emails, or we get like, I just love the work you're doing. And, you know, I love the, I love your work, the work you're doing, but that's rarely specific. And like, fake news, like, isn't really specific either, but, like, he has these very measured, um, very helpful reflections. And he said a really nice thing about Adam Pasek and myself and wrote a lovely article about our, our newsletter. So, um, big shout out to Alexander Russo. Keeps it honest. Time for the final word. What would you like to say to close out this podcast? Two words. One, I've had so much fun and I'm so honored that you invited me. Thank you. Um, and then two, I just, I just like, we talk about how teachers are heroes. We talk about how working parents are he- heroes. Like kids are so cool. They're educating themselves. Like th- this is so hard. And they're like, ev- all the kids that I've, I've interviewed are so cool. And they're so, they're trying so hard and they, they really do care. And so I would add kids as I know it's cheesy. I like cheesy. I really believe this. I think kids are also heroes in the education story of this semester and this year. Great. Amelia, this has been a delightful conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. I appreciate your insight and sharing your unique perspective. To those listening, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Diving Deep EDU. If you like this episode, subscribe, share it out, post a review on Apple Podcasts. All those things will help get this podcast out to more people. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire. 